0: Good morning, so um, my son Weston has been interested in tying knots for quite a while now, and so I have begun to channel and remember um, my Boy Scout ways and the things that I have learned there, and one of those is which, in my opinion, is by far the most useful knot to know, so if you don't know this, I would practice it, um, two half hitches. Uh, and so we're, we've worked on that. He's mastered it. Uh, we're now on practicing the bowling, rabbit coming out of the hole around the tree, seeing the fox and diving back into his hole. haven't quite gotten it yet, but we're getting it. And so we, we are working on these knots, And so, but now he's begun to think, what could I use these for? And one of the things that he is choosing to use his knots for is to make traps. Sometimes these traps are just used to hold tractors in place in midair for some reason. Um, other times they're used to trap his animals in some way, shape, or form so they can't get out. Um, but there are other times when he uses his traps to catch unsuspecting little sisters, such as Cora and Evelyn, while they walk through the hallway. The loop is setting on the floor and goes up and over the doorknob and he's hiding and he, girl walks and foot goes into the loop. He pulls up, cinches around the leg, and he's trapped them. And then screaming ensues, and we figure out how to release the trapped little sister from that. Uh, there are times when his traps are better executed than others. Sometimes it's just a total fail. It just no one steps in it and he's just waiting in the hallway for a while. But, but you see, a good trap, it has several different characteristics. Uh, for those of you who have ever deployed or put out a mouse trap, you actually know this, even though you may not know that you know it. Uh, a good trap, it has a goal for its use, killing the mouse. Uh, you, you deploy your trap in an area where it is likely to have success, where you have seen mice. You put the trap. Um, it's baited appropriately. Some of you are still using cheese. I just want you to know that's not right. Peanut butter is the way. Um, but also, your traps are hidden They're not known for what they are, and the trap is successful when it is swift in its purpose. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they use these characteristics in our passage today. Um, They are seeking to trap Jesus in his words to discredit his authority as a teacher. And so you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, uh, verse 15 to 46, and you please stand for the reading of God's word. Starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, "'If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us, and the first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, "'You are wrong.'" Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And so our our passage is divided into two parts this morning. Uh, The first being the Pharisees and the Sadducees seeking to trap Jesus with their questions. And the second being Jesus asking the Pharisees a question. And so in these interactions, we will see that Jesus has the authority to teach and judge because he is David's Lord. So let me say that again for you guys to get this. Uh, Jesus has the authority to teach and to judge because he is David's Lord. And so the first three questions in our passage, they help us to see that Jesus interprets the Old Testament correctly. And so the goal of of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is made explicitly clear in verse 15. They, They are plotting in how to entangle Jesus in his words. This is the purpose of their trap. They want to discredit Jesus' authority to teach and to interpret the Old Testament. They want the crowd to no longer see him as someone who teaches with authority. The disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, they come together and they get things kicked off with a little bit of flattery. They, they, they speak about how Jesus is true and, and teaches the way of God truthfully and is not swayed by the opinions of others. This is how they, how they bait their trap, and how they hide their trap. And finally, they deploy their trap in a place where it is likely to have success. They do this by surrounding Jesus with two groups of people who would answer the question that they ask with two exact opposite answers. The Pharisees and their disciples were all about obedience to the law. It's the reason that they asked, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Caesar was a foreign king. Should a religious Jew pay a tax to a foreign king? The Pharisees saw Rome as this oppressive government and they didn't like them anyway. They, they hated the Romans and the taxes that they imposed on the people. And so, this other group that we see is the Herodians. This group, they they represented the people who were loyal to King Herod and loyal to Rome. They were Jewish people who had sold out, in a sense, to the Roman rule, and they were benefiting financially from this poll tax. And they benefited because if they helped keep the peace, they would therefore get rich off of the tax. All of this is done to bring together a successful trap in order to discredit Jesus' authority to teach and interpret the Old Testament. They want to catch Jesus off guard when they ask the question in verse 17. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The question is meant to make it so that Jesus will have no right answer. If he says that, yes, you... um, Yes, he says to pay the tax, he will alienate the Pharisees and many people in the crowd who don't like Rome's rule over them. But if he chooses to not pay the tax and says, no, you don't have to pay it, he will put himself in trouble with the Romans and we will come unto their judgment because he is leading people to not follow the tax law. But they they should have known that they, they couldn't trap Jesus. I mean, it's Jesus after all. Uh, He he saw through it from the beginning and he called them out on it. Jesus knew that they were hypocrites and began to ask them questions instead. He's going to show them here um, in this question and the two that come after it that the religious leaders don't know God and they don't obey God. Jesus asks them to bring the coin used for the tax. And then upon receiving this coin, he asks them, whose likeness or image is on the coin. The statement that he says about whose likeness or image is on the coin is not just like this passing one, as if all of a sudden Jesus went blind and couldn't see the coin for himself. He could see it. But the image on the coin is Caesar's image. And this shows that the coin belongs to him. You put your name on the things that belong to you. Jesus tells the people to pay the tax, but he follows it up with the fact that they should also render or give to God the things that are God's. And so our money today is, is like this, too. It's the same way of, of Rome's money. You know, this $20 bill, we see it right here. But if you look at, at your money if, in your wallet, not right now, but you know later if you ever do. Um, but it says all sorts of things that show that this is the property of the United States government. The Federal Reserve note it says the United States of America on it. it has the Secretary of the Treasury in very fine font um, it's a treasurer of the United States as well it says United States Federal Reserve System on it, it has a president of a picture of Andrew Jackson on it on the back side it says the United States of America is a picture of the White House even labeled the White House if you don't know what that picture is and so everything about our money you look at other bills you look at coins it shows the image on it it shows who it belongs to clearly states it's property of the United States and therefore should be rendered to it in the ways that it's called to do so the primary figure, though, in this world that has or bears God's image and likeness is people. Genesis 1:26 and 27 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over everything, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All people have been made in God's image, and therefore we belong to God. We are called to render or give ourselves to God because of this. Giving ourselves to God involves many different acts of obedience, but the focus um, of this passage is the dilemma between when to obey the governing authorities and when to obey God. The Pharisees, they saw this as this either-or problem. But Jesus clearly said that it is possible to be subject to the emperor of Rome and also be able to honor God as God. And now there, over the course of the last year, there's been two, three, or you know, maybe even 400 different things um, that we could disagree with about the government in our country. And, and our, our government has made some actions legal. They've been legal for a long time that go against God, what God has called his people to do. prime example that I can think of is abortion. Christians um, should not o- obey this law they, because they know the truth of the sanctity of life. But there are many other situations that are not as like cut and dry as this. For instance, the coming requirements to be vaccinated for work. That's right. Went there on that one. It's hard to know what to do here. There isn't this Bible verse that speaks to this specifically. Like you open up and like, boom, there it is, about shots. But regarding these situations, this is what I would urge you to do. To approach them with cautious and humble prayer. Asking the Lord to give you His wisdom. To not see this through our own wisdom and our own cultural context of my own personal freedom as the main thing, but to remember the things that God promises us. There will be hope in the life after this one. There will be suffering in this life that will be followed by glory. We are called to live in obedience to God. So ask God to give, help you to see these types of situations through His eyes and through His values, and through His plan. So the response to Jesus' teaching was marveling. They marveled at what Jesus said. And then they went away. But now that this group was silenced, the Sadducees, they appear on the scene, and they come to trap Him on the same day with the same goal and with the same method. The Sadducees, they were different than the Pharisees in several ways. First, the Sadducees held to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as the authoritative scriptures. The second was that they didn't believe in a life after life here on earth. They rejected the supernatural components of God, such as angels and demons and the resurrection of the dead. This leaves them with just the life here and now. When they die, that's it. They had nothing to put their hope in, and that is why they are sad, you see. See? Dad joke right there. Just put it in there. I'm a dad, so this is the way I can now say these things. So, But it's a, it, this is a wonderful way to remember who the Sadducees were and what they believed. Their, their, their question to Jesus is to illustrate the, just the absurdity of the resurrection being real, and they do this by creating a very elaborate situation. Every time that I was reading this text and preparing for the sermon, I almost start to laugh when I start to read verse 23 and following because of this thing that they create. But there's, there's this married couple, plausible. The husband dies, also plausible. And according to the law in Deuteronomy 25, the man's brother needed to marry the woman to raise up children for his deceased brother so that the man's name would not be blotted out in Israel. And so the Sadducees, they, but though they took it a few steps further, and they said that the next brother also married the woman, but he died. And then they went all the way down to the seventh and final brother. begins to make you think, what is this woman doing to her husband's? But they they ask, so Jesus, which man will have this woman for their wife in the resurrection? Because they were all married to her. And I can picture them smirking a little bit. Oh, we've got him now. Making him sweat with this difficult question. But Jesus responds by saying, you're wrong. For two reasons. They don't know the scriptures, and they don't know the power of God. First, in the purpose of the law in Deuteronomy, it was to raise up offspring for the deceased man so that his inheritance of the land and his name would continue. But in heaven there will not be any new people created or anyone who will die. People will be like angels in the sense that they are eternal. The people who are in heaven are there with no more being added after the final resurrection and they will be there for eternity. And so the law that they quote here actually doesn't apply to the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees also, they don't know the power of God. They don't believe that God would supernaturally resurrect someone from the dead. That's just too outlandish for them to believe. And in refusing to believe this, they're also refusing to believe the scriptures that they hold to be true. Jesus shows this by, in verse 32 when he quotes Exodus 3, 6 to them, where God is speaking to, with Moses and says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God speaks in, in the present tense to Moses, even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have long since been dead. This shows that they had died on earth, but that they were yet still alive when the crowd heard jesus words they were astonished at his teaching the trap that was meant to discredit jesus authority as a, his discredit jesus as an authoritative teacher is just falling apart it's failing jesus is showing more and more that he is the correct interpreter of the old testament the Pharisees have been, correct, have been corrected by Jesus for not living in a way that bears God's image well. And the Sadducees were corrected for not believing in the power of God. This brings us to the final question asked of Jesus. It was asked by a Pharisee, a lawyer to be exact. Now this man, he would have, he would have prided himself in knowing the Old Testament law so well. He would have known all of the commandments in the law, word for word. And so he asks Jesus... Which is the greatest commandment in the law in order to test him? But this really isn't like a crazy question. This is a question that would have been asked quite often, actually, and debated by rabbis. The, the Pharisees knew that there were 613 different commandments in the law. These ranged from, you know, like the Big Ten, Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, um, to Leviticus 13, where there's a bunch of laws about leprosy. To the many feasts that the people were to keep in Deuteronomy 16, and then it starts to get into like these things that you can and cannot eat in Deuteronomy 14, like you can eat these clean birds, but these long list of unclean birds, don't you eat them? And so with this variety and number of laws, um, it was decided that there had to be like some level of importance. They couldn't all just like be on the same plane. Like don't eat that bird, but keep the Passover. Had to be some, one was higher than the other. And this Pharisee probably had an opinion of which law was the greatest. And if Jesus didn't say the same one, then there would be a debate. And this would show that Jesus doesn't actually know the law as well as he claims to. So Jesus, though, he answers with a summary of the law rather than a specific law. The Pharisees want to test him to see if Jesus knows the right ethics for life. But Jesus responds with an answer that focuses on a right way to live rather than a right thing to do. Jesus chose what would have been the most familiar verse in the Old Testament for his Jewish audience. The greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This statement comes from Deuteronomy 6. Every single pious Jew, the Pharisees included, would have said this section of Scripture two times a day. They would have had it written on the doorposts of their houses. They would have been reminded of it all the time. He then says that this great, the greatest commandment comes with a, another. From Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the common theme here is love. Jesus wants them to know that their religious duty was to be done out of an attitude of love for God and love for people. He knows that they do not love God because they, all that they care about is following the rules of the law and they have missed the principle of the law. He also knows that they don't love people because instead of going to those who are in need, they instead push them further and further away with their strict rules and regulations. And so one of the preaching principles that we talk about is, is that if you have not preached a sermon um, to yourself, you are not prepared to preach it to others. This principle held true for me this week in these verses about what is the greatest commandment in law. As a pastor, it's usually pretty easy for me to love other people. I, I really do love to do it. It excites me. It gives me energy to help and to serve others. But sometimes loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength is done more out of an obligation rather than from a motivation of delight in the Lord. I do it because it's my job in a sense. But these verses, they convicted me of that. They renewed my delight in the Lord as I reflected on His attributes and especially His amazing love for me. I can love God with all that I am and my neighbor as myself because of God's great love for me. Love must be a characteristic of a disciple of Christ. If we say that we follow Jesus, then we must also love God and people. We believe this here at First Free. Our philosophy of ministry and our ministry map holds this to be true. We'd say there's there's three characteristics or marks of a maturing disciple. The first one, um, disciples growing in grace will love God supremely. And they do this by loving God's word and not loving the world. The second, disciples growing in grace will love one another sacrificially. They love one another by having unity in the church and building up the church with love and submitting to the authority and discipline of the church. And the third one, disciples growing in grace will love the lost compassionately. They do this by lovingly praying for the lost and spending time with the lost and sharing the gospel with them and partnering with the church to reach the lost. Love is both the motivating factor for our obedience and also how our obedience to Jesus is measured. So how are you doing in your love for God? Is it merely a a duty to be performed, or are you also delighted to do it? In what ways are you loving one another in the church sacrificially? How are you seeking to love the lost compassionately? So the religious leaders had made a goal to trap Jesus in his words. They, they did their best to bait the trap well and to deploy it in a good area and to keep it hidden. But their trap was a total failure. Jesus answered their questions adequately and authoritatively. He interpreted the Old Testament rightly and exposed the unbelief of the Pharisees and Sadducees in the process. Their unbelief will lead to judgment. And so our second point is Jesus is the Christ who will judge his enemies. Jesus has been taking the Pharisees and the Sadducees to task in our passage this morning. And indeed, since the very beginning of chapter 21, here in verse 41, the narrative changes from Jesus being asked questions to him asking the questions. He wants to know, uh, he wants the Pharisees to, He wants to know what the Pharisees think about the Christ and whose son he is. This is actually like an easy... It's like a softball question. It's like, well, the Christ is the son of David. It's like 2 Samuel 7. It talks all about it. It speaks clearly when God makes a covenant with David. God speaking to David says this in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And it continues on after that. They answer correctly that the Christ is David's son, but they cannot answer the follow-up question that Jesus asks. Last week, just about all the pastors on staff here at church were at a Simeon Trust preaching workshop. Uh, The the theme for this workshop was the Gospel of Luke and the goal of these preaching workshops is is just to get better at preaching and teaching God's Word. One of the things that I learned um, was how to make gospel connections in the Gospels through this fulfillment and follow framework. So let's take a look at the fulfillment piece in these verses. Verse 44 is a direct quote from Psalm 1 which david is the author david is speaking through the power of the holy spirit when he says that the lord god is speaking to his this is david's lord david is saying that he has a lord so the, the pharisees they saw david as like the highest king that israel ever had and they knew that the christ would come from david's lineage but they didn't think that this son would be in any way greater than David. That's not how that's not like the way that lineage works. Like the the people who come after are never greater than those who came before. They actually owe their greatness in the present to the people that came before them. And so there's no way that he'd be greater than King David. But David's own words in Psalm 110 make it clear that the one who is spoken to come after him in 2 Samuel 7 will be David's Lord. And this Lord will sit at the right hand of God until God puts his enemies under his feet. The Pharisees, they don't really know how to answer this question. They're totally silenced by this question. Because if they answer it correctly, they would be admitting that Jesus is who he's claiming to be. The Christ. The Son of David. The Son of God. And from that day on, nobody dared to ask Jesus any more questions. Jesus had silenced his enemies and proved that he is the Christ. He's the fulfillment of David's words in Psalm 110, and because of this fulfillment, it has implications for how we should follow him. Jesus is the Christ who will save his people, but he will also rule over his enemies as their judge. He wants the Pharisees and the Sadducees to know that those who are enemies of God will be put under his feet in judgment. These religious leaders have been in opposition to Jesus the whole time. The goal of their trap was to discredit his authority, but in the process, Jesus pointed out several things. He said that they are not bearing, God's, bearing the image of God as they were called to do. And then they don't know or they don't believe in the power of God. And finally, they don't even love God. And those who don't love God are his enemies who will be judged. This judgment on them is what Jesus was speaking about in the parables from Dominic's sermon last week. The religious leaders are the son who said that he would go into the field, but indeed did not go. The one who didn't do the will of the father. They are the tenants who worked the vineyard, but didn't obey the owner in giving him the fruits from the vineyard. Therefore, the kingdom will be taken away from them and given to another. They are the, the man who didn't come dressed to the wedding and was thrown out by the king. As God's people, they were called to obey, but their lack of obedience is resulting in judgment. And so, if you have believed the gospel, you too are a child of God and a part of his people. And because of this, you are called to live a life of obedience and repentance. Are you? Are you living in a way that is not submitting to Jesus as your Lord and King? If that is true, I pray that you would respond to God's Word in the same way that the crowd responded in verse 33. They responded with astonishment. And we see throughout the book of Matthew of sinners turning to Christ in repentance. Turn away from your sin and turn back to God bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And so I know that there are many people in this room also who do not believe the gospel. The truth here is that those who don't believe the good news of Jesus' death for their sins and resurrection from the dead are enemies of God. You're not bearing God's image in the way that you were created to. You do not know the power of God. You don't love God and you don't know God's love. You're under God's judgment and wrath because of your sin. But there is good news. Jesus came for you. That's why he came. I know this because I too was once a rebel to God's will. But he loved me first, even when I refused him. I was running my hell-bound race, and I didn't care about the cross but he led me to the cross when i was 15 years old jesus bore the wrath of my sin on the cross suffering in my place and it is because of this that i know the grace of god and not the wrath of god you can respond that hallelujah i want you to believe this truth if you don't I want you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ for your salvation. This is the only way that you can be set free from the trap of the devil. And it it is, it is with this new freedom that you know the power of God and God's love. And it is then that you have the strength to follow God's commands, to love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your mind. We've seen this morning that Jesus uh, cannot be trapped because he perfectly knows and perfectly fulfills the Old Testament. He is the Christ, the Son of David. And as God's image bears, let us submit to and know the power of God as we obey his commands. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word and what it says. God, help us to believe in the truths that Jesus says here. Father, help us to be people who are responding with repentance and with belief when our lives are not living in accordance with your word and your call and your commands. Give us the strength and the humility to humble ourselves before you and before others as we come to follow after you. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.